morning, today's reading is from Genesis 1, 26 through 28, and 2, 18 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish over the, of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock stock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And, that, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. We are continuing our journey through the book of Genesis, where we are learning about the beginning of everything that indeed does have a beginning. And the beauty of Genesis is that it's Jewish meditation literature. It's not meant to just be heard once and forgotten, but something to be chewed on, chewed through, to be processed, to be talked through. And last week we began unearthing God's brilliant design for our bodies. And we saw that your body is not a mistake. Indeed, you are not a mistake. And today we're going to press even further into God's brilliant design for our bodies as we look at the awkward, beautiful, wondrous, and sometimes daunting reality that is sex. And so this morning, we're going to talk about something that makes every teenager and everyone else blush. We're going to talk about sex. But really, here's what's fascinating, probably not for the reasons you'd think. I was reading a really shocking article from The Atlantic uh, this last year. Author or journalist Kate Julian in the December 2018 issue wrote something truly astounding. And I'm going to give you a longer quote, so I want you to hang with me, but it's really worth it. It's going to be up on the screen, but let's read together. These should be boom times for sex. The share of Americans who say sex between unmarried adults is not wrong at all is at an all-time high. New cases of HIV are at an all-time low. Most women can, at last, get birth control for free and the morning-after pill without a prescription. If hookups are your thing, Grinder and Tinder offer the prospect of casual sex within the hour. 
The phrase, if someone exists, there is, if, or if something exists, there is porn of it, used to be a clever internet meme. Now it's a truism. BDSM plays at the local multiplex, but why bother going? Sex is portrayed often graphically and sometimes gorgeously on primetime cable. Sexting is statistically speaking normal, with the exception of perhaps incest and bestiality and of course non-consensual sex more generally. Our culture has never been more tolerant of sex in just about every permutation. But despite all this, American teenagers and young adults are having less sex. I want you to think about this for a second. Why do you think that's the case? We have less boundaries than ever and more access than ever. And yet we're in the midst of what many sociologists are calling in the Western culture a sex recession. Isn't that fascinating? It's not maybe what would come to your mind, but actually it's true. It's very true. Less people are having sex today than they have over the past 20 years. And she gives a lot, the author gives a lot of reasons for why that might be the case. And maybe you think that's not my story. Whatever it is. She gives a lot of reasons for why that's true and maybe some remedies. But one that she doesn't give, that a friend of mine gave, that I thought was really insightful, was that could it be our culture's promise of endless benefits from an unlimited sexual freedom is a classic example of overpromise and underdeliver. And those who are youngest who have seen everybody else make this promise are seeing it better than we can and are deciding, you know what? For no other reason, this doesn't seem like it's worth what you're saying it is. And what if this morning we can say there's actually something better, that there's actually a better way? Now, it doesn't take much to like listen around, look around, to see that there are a ton of different ideas you know, about sex in our world. But when you come to Scripture, Scripture is unequivocally clear that sex, here's what we're going to start with, sex is God's good idea. That's a, that's a big statement because here's the deal. Sex isn't something that just evolutionarily happened pragmatically. Like, well, we've got to keep the race going, so this is something we've you know, just evolved into. It's not something that human beings discovered through trial and error. <laughs> sex is God's good idea. Seriously, sex is God's good idea. And this morning, we're going to return to the beginning and see God's brilliant intention, his good intention for you and I when it's within his framework. And we're going to step into an ancient text today, a text that I think when we really begin to unearth it is going to lead to two pretty massive surprises and will have a big impact on how we understand our bodies and what we should come to expect from sex. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, and we're going to begin in verse 15. Verse 15. Now, if you've been with us, you've seen that throughout Genesis 1, which is the background to Genesis 2, God has been creating this brilliant world. And at the end of each day of creation, we see what? And God saw that it was good. At the end of each day, it was good. It was good. It's like a bass drum in the midst of God's brilliant symphony of creation, keeping the beat. It is good. It is good. It is good. And then suddenly... When you get to Genesis 2, we zoom in on day 6. And we're plunged into a scene where for the first time, God says, it is not good. 
And to be clear, it's not because God made something bad. It's because something significant is still missing. Let's see if we can make sense of this together in the text. Turn with me, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. We read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. We've talked about this in previous weeks. God creates Adam brilliantly constructs his body, makes him and puts him in the garden and creates capacity for him to actually make his good world even more beautiful. Every single person has this capacity to actually care for God's good world. Then jump to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And what follows in those next few verses is this brilliant scene where God creates these animals and he basically parades them before Adam to see what he will name them. He gives Adam naming rights of the animals, which is a way of exercising dominion. And, you know, I've been to a lot of zoos with my kids. Like, I would love if that was like the way zoos were. You didn't like go to like the different glass. Do you see the lion? I don't see the lion. He's way in the back. No, like at this point, like the animals are parading before Adam, like trying to give him a good angle. You know, like name me the way I am, Adam. You know, like the lion's like fluffing up his mane. All these things, right? And he sees, okay, that's a penguin. I don't know where you fit. You're a zebra. What? So, you know, a giraffe. Um, and you get through this scene and you don't know how long it takes. You're not actually given a time frame, but he's naming all of these different animals. But the way the scene ends is with Adam alone. And he feels it. He senses his uniqueness over against everything else in creation. And then we read in the second half of verse 20, but for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Adam finds himself looking for someone. Whenever you, find, whenever you see here, you know, there was not found. That means Adam was indeed looking for someone. He was looking for something. He was looking for, for someone to come alongside of him and for him to come alongside of that something or that someone. And, and the question is, what was he looking for? What is this helper to help with? Now, in our sex-saturated culture, when we read this text, it's kind of like uh, the guy who goes and sees the psychologist and he's sitting there, and the psychologist does, which is a normal practice, he holds up like a white placard with an ink blot on it, and he says, what do you see? And he goes, I see sex. So he holds up another white placard with ink blot. What do you see? I see sex. Over and over again, he just keeps saying sex, sex, sex. And the psychologist says, well, oh, that's obvious. You are clearly obsessed with sex. And the guy says, well, maybe, but you're the one drawing all the dirty pictures, <laughs> right? You know, like we get so obsessed. It's from What About Bob, by the way, just to name credit if you've ever seen that movie. Um, <laughs> we get so obsessed with certain things that we begin to see them everywhere and we get tunnel vision. And the same is true when we come to helper that we can essentially believe that either primarily or sometimes even exclusively this helper language is emphasizing marriage and sex. But I want to be very clear that what I am not saying and what the text is not saying this morning, what the Bible does not teach is that the primary goal for a human being is to find romance. The Bible does not teach that the chief aim of the humankind is to find a spouse and to have a personal love story. Instead, what we do see clearly anchored in the text 
is that every human being is called to cultivate and care for God's good world. That's why he's put us here. And then as we heard read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, we are made in the image of a God and created in community, male and female, for connection, which may or may not include sex. And so we don't want to jump the gun and say instantly, oh, this is about a sexual counterpart. It's part of the story, but it's not the sum total of the story. Instead, we see sex is God's good idea. And he's created, and the reason, listen, listen, the reason the creation is not good at this moment is because Adam, who has all this capacity to contribute to God's good world, is limited in his capacity, and he needs complementary gifts to actually go about doing what he could never do in isolation, and so carrying out God's good work in the world. Now, that may include marriage and sex, as we'll come to see. But before we do that, what we need to see is one of the most interesting first surprises in this text. The first surprise we see in Genesis is that you do not have to have sex to be fully human. Sigmund Freud, the priest of the secular age, would say sex is at the very center of being human. You see everything through the lens of sex, but not according to God. Let's see how the text works this out. Genesis chapter, or Genesis chapter, um, or, sorry, I'm losing my place here for just a second. So first and foremost, we are made in the image of God, and that means we contribute to God's good world, and we do so through and with connection, but it doesn't necessarily mean sex and marriage. This is made even more clear when we look at Jesus. When we look at Jesus, Jesus, who, when God chooses to come to the earth, and exemplify a perfect human existence, he does, through, does so through celibate singleness. Do you ever think about that? Like, Jesus is fully human, fully what we are meant to be, and he, and he never has sex, and he never gets married. Is that because Jesus is somehow subhuman? No, he's fully human. Yes, he's fully God. But right here we see an elevation of singleness. On top of that, we are in a text here in Genesis chapter 2 that Jesus himself quotes. Isn't that fascinating? Genesis chapter 2, he quotes it in having a debate with the Pharisees. You see this in Matthew's historical eyewitness account in chapter 19 of his gospel account. Jesus is in a debate with the Pharisees and he goes and he says, Listen, I know that this text was written centuries before for a different cultural context, but I think the text, even though it was written centuries before for a different cultural context, still applies to now first century Jewish culture and, and God's people amidst Rome. And he goes on to actually quote, not that saying Moses wrote this down, he said, didn't God say he created the male and female? He has an unbelievable elevated view of Genesis 2 as having authority over our sexual identity and our framework for marriage. And so Jesus, being fully human, was celibate and single, proclaims that Matthew 19, by his example, if we want to follow Jesus, we got to follow Jesus here. You can't just pick and choose what you want to follow about Jesus or you're not following Jesus. You're following someone else that you wish were Jesus. Jesus upholds this text as beautiful, as defining, as God's will and his good design for human beings. You do not have to have sex to be fully human. 
And then, of course, Paul, an avid follower of Jesus who was always following Jesus, Rabbi Jesus, who knew the Hebrew text way better than we did, understood the culture way better than we do, follows Jesus here. And when he writes to the early church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he upholds that both marriage and celibate singleness are godly vocations for the Christian. And goes on to even say, after making some arguments, that celibate singleness can be better for Christian mission. Truly astounding. So this morning, I hope you hear that if you are single and you are here this morning and you're holding on to God's design of celibacy and your singleness, that you, are not, you have not missed God's best for your life and you are not living some second-class human existence, even though sometimes the church promotes that or our culture promotes that. Instead, you are in really good company with the God-man Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul. Be affirmed where you are. You do not have to have sex to be fully human. And that leads us to our second surprise. And it's just how un- Unwilling to budge, we, we see God's word is around the second surprise. You, you do have to be fully married to have sex. Look with me here at Genesis chapter 2, verses 22 through 25. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, many scholars will notice that the word used for wife there in verses 24 and 25 has a lexical range of meaning woman or wife. And so the question is, well, is, who's, what's this actually emphasizing? Is this really promoting marriage or is it just pr- promoting like exclusivity at a particular point in time? Once again, let's go to how Jesus uses it, the true commentator of scripture to help us better understand. In Matthew 19, when he does bring up this text and he's debating with the Pharisees, it's all around the issue of divorce, which we don't have time to get into this morning. But if that's a part of your story, I hope you know that God's grace is abounding, that that is not the unpardonable sin. Simultaneously, it is not what God has and designs and desires for any one of us. And in Matthew 19, Jesus is pretty clear that when the Pharisees are trying to uh, loosen the requirements of marriage and God's design, Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And they said, well, didn't Moses give us a command that we can write a certificate of divorce, which is a way for men to actually put women in a very vulnerable position? He says, yeah, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus is going back to Genesis. And he's saying, listen, listen, listen. He's talking about marriage. He understood Genesis 2 as talking about marriage, as God's designed intention for marriage to flourish. Listen, the principle in Scripture is clear that God has so deemed that sex flourishes exclusively in a lifelong relationship between one man and one woman. That is the design clearly on display here. Sex is God's good idea. 
And it only flourishes when his intention and his framework is upheld and embraced. I mean, listen, there's a lot of things in Scripture where we can scratch our heads on and go like, wait, what is going on here? But this is not one of them. You look across the storyline of Scripture, the initial design is upheld across the biblical authors. This is what the prophets rail against Israel for again and again, alongside of idolatry, when many a times those two are interconnected. When you get to Jesus, he clearly upholds this design, and the Apostle Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors consistently again and again come back to this issue of sexual immorality, which is anything out of God's good design. It's abundantly clear in the text, but it's still very difficult. And I know there's some here that'll say, Gabe, that's so regressive. Gabe, it's 2019. Get with the times. But I think we're leaning into a promise that won't deliver. And I think we're missing what God is promising in his good design. I want you to look again at chapter 2, verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. No shame. Is that your story when it comes to your sexual history? I know my history has some shame in the midst of it. And no matter who you are, we can have those moments of deep shame that sometimes those memories and that trauma can last a lifetime. You see, God doesn't want you to experience shame as it coalesces with your body. He did not create sex to also be something that's a very shameful experience. But when we seek to sidestep his design, which is one man, one woman, and that being the crucible, the place where sexual intimacy is to flourish for a lifetime, when we seek to sidestep that because we have all this post hoc justification because we want to do what we want to do, which has been an issue of humanity from the dawn of sin, it opens the door to all kinds of shame and all sorts of destruction and pain. That's the reason God wants to keep us from that is because he doesn't want us to undergo unnecessary pain and heartache and destruction. So why? Why is this such a big deal? Because really God made sex really powerful. He made sex really powerful. We may not come out and say that, but we all know it to be true. We know, we've either seen it in our own lives or we've seen it in the lives of those that we love. Sex can be a catalyst for great joy or great heartache and great emptiness. Sex can build something beautiful or it can lead to lifetime of trauma and pain and brokenness. You know, as a pastor, when I think about the conversations I don't pursue, but that people pursue me about, I can't tell you how many times people come to me broken over how sex has been misused as a weapon against them. I can't tell you how many times people come to me because they're wrestling through their own sex-related addiction. And like 95% of the time, seriously, when I'm sitting across the table from someone and I'm having coffee with them and they say the phrase, I haven't told anyone else about this, but I need to tell you, like 95% of the time, it is related to sex. Sex is powerful, really powerful. And its power resides in its mystical ability to cement a commitment that has been designed to flourish over a lifetime. 
Look with me here at chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Something truly powerful is happening here. Two different individuals now become something other. It's not that they lose their identities. They still are who they are. But now they are also something other. And this is because the reason sex is so powerful is because we are more than just our bodies. And sex is never just physical. What you do with your body impacts you emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. Whether we like it or not, who we are as a human being and what we do with our bodies is way more enmeshed in how we see ourselves and how we navigate life. And God's design has been for one man, one woman, for a lifetime so that we might flourish, that we might leverage the power of sex to solidify a commitment that was made not in the midst of sex, but before sex. So that trust and intimacy and vulnerability can be cultivated for our good. Sex is God's good idea. And it's really, really powerful. And when we go outside the bounds of marriage, it is the doorway to so much misery and wretchedness when it comes to our lives. I have a friend of mine who, I mean, and this isn't a unique story, but it, this is a specific story. He'd been in multiple relationships, but finally he and his girlfriend got really serious. And so they moved in together. And of course they're sleeping together and they're sharing everything in their lives together. And at first the passion was hot, right? And then he said, but eventually she started backing away. He got more controlling. She became more distanced until eventually she left the relationship altogether. They'd been together for like a year maybe, but it felt like a lifetime to him. The physical intimacy he would describe was just like, it was like he was all in and she was all, it was just like, it was powerful, it was palpable. But when she left, it didn't just, it didn't just crush him. Like it didn't shake up his world a little bit. It devastated him. He went into a deep spiral of depression anger and bitterness. He said, I know we weren't married, but it felt like a divorce. And, and it was really that downward spiral that led him to Jesus and to explore the church, for sure. But as long as I knew him, he would look back on that relationship and say, Gabe, I still have the scar there. There's like a part of me where my whole body, all that I was, was torn in two when that relationship ended. Sex is so powerful. And when it's not made or given or leveraged within the institution of marriage where there's promises that you will now chase one another to self-sacrificially love one another, whether sex is a part of that story or not, for the rest of your life, then it can lead to all kinds of destruction and pain. And this is why all sex, listen, listen, this is why all sex outside of marriage misses God's mark. Every bit of it. All sex outside of marriage misses God's mark. Whether that's pornography, whether that's adultery, whether that's sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend or your fiance, 
I can't tell you how many couples I've sat down with and they said, Gabe, we're different. We're going to get married. There's no doubt in our minds. This is just about a prereq. And then the relationship breaks up. And then the, the feelings and the devastation is awful that comes out of that. No, no, Gabe, you don't understand. We're different. It's always we're different. No, we're all the same when it comes to that. It's not that you vowed to vow. It's that you've really made those vows that sets up the infrastructure for sex to be something powerful and flourishing in your life. Jesus never looks at any sort of sexual sin and has a hierarchy. He doesn't say, oh, you did that. And so that kind of cuts both ways. Here's two things. It never allows for arrogance. I don't struggle with this sexual sin, but I struggle with this one. Nope, no arrogance whatsoever. But simultaneously, the way it cuts both ways is that Jesus never looks at any sexual sin and says, you know what, that's not that big of a deal. We may like really talk up like in the church and those who are outside of the church like, there's no hierarchy. Well, sure. But that also means is that Jesus takes every bit of sexual sin just as serious. We don't like to lean into that part as much of that truism that we see in Scripture. God's design and his good idea of sex is that you don't have to have sex to be fully human, but you do need to be fully married to have sex, to leverage the power that God has entrusted that action to really be for our good and our flourishing for a lifetime. And before I move on, I do want to say, just in case there are questions out there, not all sex within marriage is great either. I mean, I think sometimes we think that marriage is like the sexual promised land. Um, When the reality is, if you're wrestling with sex now, you're still going to wrestle with it in marriage. It's just going to be a little different. Marriage can be a crucible of one or two ways. Marriage can be a crucible that refines you and, and actually cultivates joy and intimacy and vulnerability. But marriage can also be a crucible that leads to greater shame when you're not surrendering to all that God has for you and everybody of your life. Because you're hiding more from someone you've told you were going to give everything to. That's enough on brokenness. Because <laughs> today we're in Genesis 2. Genesis 3 is coming. We'll have plenty of time to talk about brokenness. And really, when you read across the pages of Genesis, the whole book of Genesis, sexual brokenness is everywhere. Even if it's not explicit, the implicit decisions lead to so much brokenness that we'll unpack as we see as they go against God's design again and again and again. And so this morning, what I really want to do is open wide this huge invitation for every single one of us to let God's good idea reshape your sexuality. No matter your station in life, no matter where you're at, trust God and his good design. Trust him like Jesus trusted it. Trust him like Paul trusted it. Like all the New Testament authors consistently went back to this framework as what God has in store for us is God's best for us. Not that you be married, but that you live within his sexual ethic and his framework on how we leverage our bodies for good. Trust him. It's not going to be easy. Everything that's really good takes a ton of work. We know this. When you see people you really admire, it's because they worked really hard. I'm just saying. And this is really hard. It's a lifelong struggle. It's not anything anybody in this room has arrived at. But it's better Because when you lean into God's design for sex, shame goes running. I'll give you an example of this. When I was in college, I had a professor, Dr. Drollinger. And there was about 50 or so of us uh, 
in his class, and it was about midway through the semester. He was a Bible professor, and it was a co-ed class, and he just begins to talk about his wife, how beautiful she was, her hair, her smile, her laugh, her desire to follow Jesus always inspired him. And then he, would even, he even went in to say, and this was, it, was, it was totally strange for all of us, he went in to say about, you know, after they were physically intimate, they would worship God over his good design. And I got to be honest with you, it was weird. <laughs> but the reason is, is all I'd seen in our world is like this vulgar sexuality where you can't talk about it, veiled in shame. I'd never seen someone so open, unashamed, but, but simultaneously not vulgar about their sexual intimacy with their spouse, truly honoring of the other and honoring God's good design. It was, it was palpable and it was, it was unbelievable. And then he went on to say how his wife had passed away seven years ago. And he's tearing up. And he went on to say how she was, her body was just riddled with cancer. And towards the end of her life, she really wanted to sing. Before oh, she's breathing her last breath, she wanted to sing the old hymn, God is so good. Because even in the midst of cancer, even in the midst of so many things that went wrong, all she could do is just be utterly grateful because God had been so good to her. And so as she's breathing her last, they're singing those final words so she can't even speak but just mouth the words until she passed away. And then Dr. Drollinger said, listen, I had some really great years of serving Jesus alongside of my wife within that vocation of marriage. But now I serve Jesus within the vocation of singleness as a widower. And I find both joy in both of those vocations. And in my celibacy, I long to leverage who God has made me to be and where he has placed me to be to carry out his mission in ways I never thought possible. He let God, he let God his good idea of sexuality reshape his sexuality as his life situation transitioned. And it was inspiring. It was powerful. And man, that guy was just like all holistic and really good. I mean, he was one of those guys that everybody just flocked to. And you ask anybody in that class, and he did this every year, you ask anybody in that class that was the highlight of their moment when he began to talk about his wife and the intimacy they had and as they worshiped God even in the midst of that. So I don't know where you are this morning. I, if you're single and celibate, praise God. I know some of you are like, hey, no, I'm not. No, seriously, if you're single and you're celibate, praise God. It's a gift. It's a vocation, although it feels like a burden at times. God has you where you are, and he wants to use who you are to carry out his mission in the world, and you do not have to live a second-class human existence. You do not have to have sex to be fully human, and to know a full life. If you're engaged or you're dating, why don't you protect the person you love? Sex is really powerful. It's really powerful. And until the marriage foundation has been laid and you're ready to finally make that lifelong commitment and you do so before God and before others and you have the accountability structure and the promises to undergird a lifelong commitment, then invite sex to do what it is designed to do to cement that relationship for a lifetime. If you love that other person, steward that power really well. Wouldn't you want someone to do that for you? 
And then if you're married, lean in and love well, but do not be naive because your sexual battles are not done. Temptation continues to lurk to guide you outside of those bounds of marriage and continues to lure even the actual sex act into a selfish move instead of a self-giving moment. No matter what your station in life is, we all have room to grow here. God's good design is for every single one of us. And it beckons us to his good idea of flourishing, what he's called us to, no matter where you find yourself this morning. And listen, I'm also not so naive as to think that some in this room have transgressed, transgressed God's good design, even maybe last night, in our sexual impurity. If that's true of you, I hope you know that God's grace and his arms are open wide. His design is too beautiful. His grace is too powerful. His forgiveness too palpable. And his transformation so effective that he won't leave you riddled with shame. And it's all because our single and celibate Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, went to the cross even though he never had sex, he went to the cross and he died specifically or broadly for all of our sin, but specifically for our sexual sin that he might wash our bodies clean and that he might offer forgiveness freely and new life. A life that reminisces of the ancient garden, a life that calls us back to his design and for our good. If we just receive him, and all that he offers. Don't just take his forgiveness and continue to pursue destruction. You're going to become discontent with the Christian life if you don't take all that Jesus offers you. You're never too far gone. You're never a lost cause. So just embrace him and his good design. Sex is God's good idea. Let it reshape your sexuality. Let's pray. God, I don't know if I said, I've said sex in a message more than I have this morning. Um, and even that word feels taboo sometimes in Christian circles. What a shame. What an important part of our existence. And in a sex-saturated world, we need to be talking about it more, not less. Not as a place to cultivate shame, but God, help us to point to your good design and your forgiveness so that we might be free from shame. Holy Spirit, will you convict us of our sin? Will you guide us in truth for our good, for the good of those we're in relationship with, for the good of our community? Lord God, this, is, this has become a, a greater issue more and more in the church although it's been an issue from day one. And so I pray, God, that you would guide us in discernment, that we would not hold fast to the folly of human wisdom and our own justifications, but hold fast to the justification we have in Christ and your divine wisdom as revealed in your word and your good design. I know I am prone to just justify what I want to do rather than longing to see what is best for me, which is what you want for me. May that be true for all of us. May we submit to you and so find joy and freedom in the midst of your boundaries. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit.
Amen.